Good morning, uh, good morning, everybody. Glad to be back here. Uh, we had a lovely, lovely time away. I trust you all were in good hands with uh, with Martin, and uh, uh, now you get me. So kind of a downgrade in uh, many respects. But um, we're going to look this morning in our series on the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, at the uh, the part of the Creed that really uh, many folks think shouldn't be in there. That is the statement that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the virgin birth, a doctrine that's kind of seen as a, well, not really needed, um, extraneous, mm, made up sometimes perhaps, who knows, impossible to believe. But before we get there, let me uh, open us up in a word of prayer as we come before our God. Please bow with me. Almighty God, we come thanking you that you uh, save us by grace, that you work wondrous things in our lives, that you are the God who continually gives life to the dead. And Lord, you do that with our souls, you do that with our lives. You strengthen us every morning. You give us the ability to wake up and smell the roses. And more than that, Lord, you give us your Holy Spirit. You give us a union with your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, to look at the, the way this beautiful life resembles the way He came into the world. Let us see in His birth, our birth, our new birth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Alice said, I can't believe that. Can't you? The queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying. She said, one can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. Not my favorite book, but uh, interesting, I suppose, in many ways. But really, a, a fun quote to begin our, our study of what seems to be an impossible thing. There are Christians today who, who look at the virgin birth. They say, yes, this is what the, uh, the, the Red Queen in Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, this is what she was talking about. It's an impossible idea, and we're smarter, we're more rational, we are uh, more clever. We don't believe in uh, incredible, insane, impossible things, the virgin birth, the fact that uh, someone is said to be born of a virgin. That, that, that doesn't happen. There's no way we could have a conception like that. And, you know, if, if you read R.C. Sproul's uh, book on the Crete, he'll tell you all the scientific reasons why that's actually uh, uh, an okay, rational thing to believe. I'm not going to cover that. Sproul does a good job of, of dealing with kind of the scientific or the, uh, the rational, logical reasons why the virgin birth is a good doctrine to believe in. And, and those are all helpful things to think about. I'm not going to discuss them in the time we have together. If you want to know about that, well, look up Sproul. I'm sure there's an article on Ligonier. Probably has, uh, or if you want a copy, talk to me and we, I can uh, let you borrow mine. 
I don't think, however, that that's really the, the major, that the most important thing for us to know, the reason that millions of Christians have confessed that we believe that Christ is born of a virgin, is not because it makes a rational or logical or deductive sense. It does. But um, we need to realize why this gets star placement as one of the 10 or 12 things that Christians must be united on. I mean, this, this makes it into the creed. It didn't have to. We don't read about, for example, the disciples. The creed does not mention any of the 12 disciples. And yet, they get star billing in much of the Gospels all over the place. And yet, it mentions this, the virgin birth. A thing that we think is impossible to believe, it mentions. Why does it do that? Why does the creed speak about what seems to be impossible. I think the trouble starts when we take this line, the creed, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, we view it in isolation. It's like if, look, they say if you learn how to ride a bike, you never forget. I have not tested that principle recently. Maybe I will. I'll let you know what happens. But one of the things that I find frustrating about bikes are bicycle chains. Very rough. Hard to deal with for me, at least. But if you picked up a bicycle chain and you'd never seen a bicycle, would you have any idea what the object was? If you pick up a bicycle chain and you just look at it and you don't know what a bicycle is, what is it? Is it a weapon? Is it a piece of jewelry? To know what a bicycle chain is, you have to know a bicycle. You have to know first what a bicycle is. You have to know the proper context. And the same thing is true of the virgin birth. The same thing is true of the virgin birth. One of the great issues people have uh, with this incredible, impossible thing, one of the reasons why folks uh, place it in the category of, of, of credulity, primitive people believing silly things, like the, the Red Queen in, in uh, Carol's Wonderland, is that we don't realize the whole story of Scripture. Let me just take you on a little journey. It's probably familiar to you. Um, but <clears throat> recall how Israel's story begins. It begins in Genesis 12 to 17. It begins with a miraculous birth, in a sense. It begins with Abraham and Sarah. It begins with the birth of Isaac. It begins with his birth. It begins with a, a couple who cannot conceive, who are too old to conceive. And yet, what happened? God comes to them. God says, you will have a great family, and Sarah laughs at the promise. It's impossible. It stretches credulity, and yet, she conceives. Isaac is born. We've been to Genesis. We know this. Or, or if, if you consider Moses, move on a little bit further. Exodus. You have Moses. Now Moses is not born miraculously, but his infancy is marked by a miraculous escape from danger. He's snatched away from the genocidal murdering hand of Pharaoh. He's put in a basket. He's put on a river. He's found and adopted by, miraculously, a member of the royal household, an Egyptian princess, who, who then, in a fit of wonderful providence, chooses to be his nursemaid, his biological mother. It's a providential design by which Moses is smuggled into the very heart of the evil empire of Egyptian power. 
And of course, we press on throughout the Old Testament. You come to uh, the book of Judges. And the first judge, the best judge, is a guy you probably don't hear a lot out, uh, much about, Othniel, because he's the best one. He doesn't get much press. But you get all the way down to the end, and the biggest story, the biggest story of all the judges is, of course, our buddy. He gets all the songs today, all the press, Samson. And how is Samson's birth promised? An angel. His mother is not able to conceive, but she is visited by an angel who tells her she will give birth to a Savior who will lead Israel to triumph over their enemies, who will deliver them, who will save them not from their sins, but from their enemies. This is how it goes in the Old Testament, the great turning point of history. We can go further, of course, to, to, to Hannah and Samuel. Down the road, she is barren. And what happens? She prays, she goes to the temple, and God again gives deliverance. This is how God often worked at the great redemptive historical turning points. Barrenness or a lack of ability to conceive, and then there's a woman and she gets pregnant and an infant is brought in the world in a seemingly impossible way. Israel's story is a story of miraculous birth. Therefore, when we confess that Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, we shouldn't say, oh, that's, you know, we have to say that. We don't really mean it. We shouldn't kind of be shy about this disbelief. It makes sense when you put it in the plot line of the Old Testament. It's simply the best one. It's simply the grandest one. It's not a random miracle story. It's not uh, weird that God would work in this way. It's not abnormal if you've been picking up on the clues. It's a reminder that our faith, the Christian faith, must be rooted in the Scriptures of Israel. And therefore, when we confess that He is born of the Virgin Mary, we are confessing this one against the backdrop of the promise of God to Abraham, the promise of God to Moses, the promise of God to Samuel and the prophets and the judges and all the rest. Therefore, this shows us really in a beautiful way the secret of history is an insignificant woman exploding in joy when the promise of God comes to her. This shows us the, 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 real, the real twist and the real meaning of history is in seemingly impossible, insignificant odds and people are the ones chosen to bear the promise of God into the world. So, that's kind of point one, I suppose. To have the right perspective. Often the perspective is, give me the science. And I told you, if you want to look at the science, hey, go to Archie Sproul. He gives you some of the details on that. He gives you something to follow up on. I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I'm not here to talk about conception and how that works and all that sort of thing. But I'm here talking about how the Bible's plot line is very central and basic. The virgin birth in perspective. Any questions on that? They shouldn't surprise you if you're tracking with it. Great. Second, we move on. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by... This is part of the creed. And it comes before the virgin birth. Let me invite you to turn to Luke one thirty-five. And perhaps whoever gets there, if uh, somebody could read it, that would be wonderful. Luke 
Excellent. Thank you. This, of course, is the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel coming to Mary, she asked this question, how shall it be since I'm a virgin? The angel says, this is how conception will happen. The Holy Spirit, there's the answer. In one sense, uh, it's yet another miracle. In one sense, I suppose this is just the fact. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the conception. That's great. We, people get all bogged down in the details. What does that mean as far as, you know, the, the fetus and the, the embryo and all that sort of stuff? I don't think that's really helpful. Uh, partially because the Bible doesn't get trapped in those details. Um, you can have that little fun discussion in your leisure time. But the question I want to ask us is, why does this rank? What is this doctrine, the conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit, rank in the creed? What if it get star billing in something that billions of Christians have said and will say for, for years and centuries to come? Like part of the, the, the key answer here um, <clears throat> is, <coughs> again, found in looking back at the opening book of the Bible. When you go back to Genesis, what do you find? The very first words, I'll read them. Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the face of the waters. The Spirit was brooding, in a sense, almost like a bird, over Christmas break, I went and saw some birds out in Galveston. There's kind of swamp birds. But even the swamp birds can be attractive. And one of the swamp birds was this little kind of heron figure. And it would, it would uh, as it would come down, it would grab the fish. And it would chomp on it. It would have a good little meal. And before it would just fly off, it would kind of hover a little bit. It would kind of get its wings, I suppose. It would hover over the waters. It would create whip ripples in the, in the pond. And that's the, that's the image of the verb we find the very first couple of verses of the Bible, the Holy, the Holy Spirit of God, like a bird, is hovering over the waters of creation. Now we come to this Luke one thirty-five. This verb overshadow. is the same one used in the Greek translation by the Greek translators of the New Old Testament in chapter 1, verse 2 of the Bible. Hovering, overshadowing, that's the point. The point is that just as the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep of creation, the formless, so now the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters of new Creation. The Old Testament writers can speak of the Spirit as the source in some ways of creation. Psalm 104, verse 30, when you send out your Spirit, they are created. Or you think of how God breathes into Adam the breath of life and Adam becomes a living being. You see, when the Holy, the Holy Spirit is, in a sense, there, the big shot. He gets the preeminence when it comes to forming life. We want to say that the Father gets the preeminence when it comes to planning life. We want to say that 
Christ gets the preeminence when it comes to achieving life, and these are very uh, simplistic ways of dealing with it because all persons are active in every work of the Trinity. Uh, but we might say the Spirit is preeminent when it comes to th this action of life being made. He, the Spirit, bring, the, if you will, the Spirit conceived life out of nothing in the first creation. So why would it be crazy for the Spirit to conceive life out of the water of the womb of the Virgin Mary in the second creation? You see, when you begin to put these little puzzle pieces together, it's not so crazy. And in fact, it makes quite a deal of sense. To go further with the, uh, with the point, you recall what happens in the upper room with the disciples. There's this little scene. where Jesus Christ speaks to his disciples. And he breathes upon them. In a similar way, he gives life to them. This is why the Spirit appears in tongues like fire at Pentecost. The Spirit is the one who brings life. Life that purifies. Life that revives. So it, it should not shock us that when the Spirit broods or hovers or overshadows over the womb of Mary, God's creative work is starting again. Something new is happening here. I think that's why. That's one big reason why we confess that Christ is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Comments on that? Questions? Pushback? Clarifications? Yes, sir. Maybe Aquinas, when he talks about mitigating this marriage, I'll be that form of the Christian comes to this sort of gender difference and the contribution. And so the importance of the sin nature being connected to the man. Uh, I don't think that, but is that a necessary thing to affirm? Yeah, well, redemptive historical piece more important. Yeah, I was going to actually one bad reason to hold to the uh, virgin birth. The, um, we we don't believe necessarily that. Um, <clears throat> some people to, to say what you're saying, Elijah, and put it in in maybe simpler terms. Um, some people argue that Christ is born of a virgin. Um, because that way Christ would be without sin, you know, and his, his daddy is the father, so to speak, the God, and therefore he's sinless um, because sin would be passed down through the seed of the father. That depends upon a, um, what, the, what the scholars call a realistic view of original sin, uh, not a common understanding of how sin gets passed down. Um, that's built, that, that has the idea that sin exists in our nature in some way. And uh, traditionally, Christians and generally Protestant, even more specifically Reformed theologians have argued that uh, sin is actually imputed, not transmitted through biology, if you will. Um, yeah. Good question, though. 
Other questions, comments, cares, concerns? Yeah. Mike. How does that occur? Are you prepared to explain that? Sure. Uh, I, I may not be prepared, but I, I can give it a try. A um, couple of things. First, uh, we would argue that, you know, you look at Romans 5, for example, 12 to 21, and you see how Paul really draws out this idea. He does it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. But he draws out this idea that uh, <clears throat> one man's sin was counted. We would say imputed, but it's a fancy word for counted. One man's sin, Adam, was counted to the many. And just as that one man's sin was counted to the many, so another man, one man's righteousness, was counted to many for obedience. That is Christ, the imputation of Christ's obedience. Um, so in the, in the Bible, there are really three imputations, right? We receive Adam's sin, Christ receives our sin, and we receive his righteousness. Um, there are three countings, if you will, or reckonings, or declarations. Yes, Greg? of reasoning, then it's more of a federal headship Absolutely. versus the actual carnal physical body of doing it, um, which would be more probably of the Greek. And the Roman Catholics had, I mean, as, as uh, Elijah mentioned, Aquinas, and to, to some degree, Augustine, depending on how you read him. Influenced heavily by yeah. the Greek. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely a kind of a, a very, a very negative view of our biology, and you know, yeah, I, I shouldn't say that. That now we get off off topic. Yes, I had to filter myself. It was about uh, Louis Giglio. You can ask me afterwards. <clears throat> In any event, um, so the Holy Spirit imputation. Does that answer your question, Mike? Okay, we can <laughs> chat further at lunch if you want to. Um, very good. Um, let me. Any other comments on that? All right. Well, let's go to the big, the big thing here, which is uh, why, why the virgin birth? Why the virgin birth? I've already said it's miraculous. I've already pointed out the kind of Bible connections. Um, again, let me just give the doctrine here. The incarnation is by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Christ is brought forth. Let me give you the doctrine to you in one more level of detail. At the very moment of conception in the body of Mary, the divine nature was united to the human nature in one person. In other words, we don't believe that uh, Jesus was up in heaven and that he waited for a baby to be born, and then like a couple minutes afterwards, he kind of came into the baby like a demon possession. That's not what we believe. <laughs> that's, that's a, well, not a demon possession, I suppose. It's, it's not the incarnation. It's not a, an adoptionist point of view to be nerdy about it. But the key thing here is this, this, this text, Luke one thirty-five. right? <clears throat> how will there be a human being, Mary asked, verse 34, how can I have a human being in my womb if I'm a virgin? And the answer is no biology. I mean, this rules out any biological explanation, I would argue. The answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a miraculous act. Because this miraculous act, there will be a human being growing in Mary's womb, and therefore, this child to be born will be wholly the Son of God. The human being, at the same time, is the Son of God. There's no room for a human being uh, who's not also the Son of God. So, why is, why is Christ born the virgin? Let me give you some bad reasons first that people have argued, and I'll give some better reasons towards the end. 
That's how you argue, right, I guess? You have the bad ones first, and they go into the very end, so we all feel good as we get out of here. Um, <clears throat> first bad reason, maybe not bad, but it's kind of what, what, what Elijah asked about. Uh, some people argue that it was necessary that Christ was born of a virgin so that uh, he, he would be uh, without sin. He had to be born uh, of a virgin so that he would be without sin, right? Because sin goes to the daddy. No, not, not, not the way. Again, we've already covered that. Uh, second point, this is not really a bad argument. It's more just one that I don't think there's any evidence for in the Bible. Um, it's not wrong, per se. Uh, some folks argue that it was actually, it's, it's very fitting, it's very appropriate that Christ is born of a virgin because he's true God, and therefore true God needs to come into the world in some big, miraculous way. Right? Because he's, he's divine, it's appropriate that he comes in the world in a different way. A way that's not normal to the rest of us. Now again, I don't know if I can object to this in a theological sense, but I don't find anything in the Bible that suggests that it is required that the Son of God be born in a kind of special or unique way. That's all I'd say about that. Uh, <clears throat> third, again, not, not a great argument. Uh, some say this, this protects his divine sonship. This protects the fact the son is the son of the father. It protects his identity so that we're not thinking that Joseph's the real dad. He doesn't have a human dad. It really protects him. And, and some, could, some argue here, and they say, look, uh, verse, verse 35, because the spirit works, therefore the child will be called the holy one. The issue is that the verse does not say, because you're a virgin, therefore the child will be holy. The issue here is that it's not the virginity of Mary that causes Christ to be uh, a son. It's the uh, Spirit's power. So I'm not, that's not a reason that I'm really persuaded by. And if you don't get all that, don't worry about it. Um, <clears throat> one more bad, not great reason. Or at least it, it feels good to me to say it, but I don't think it's actually biblical. Okay, so we're getting closer to better, I suppose. This one feels good to me. This is the great church father, Irenaeus, his classic argument. Um, he says this, I'll quote him, death came into the world through a virgin, so salvation should come into the world through a virgin. Eve, Mary. That feels nice. I like it. I don't, I don't think it's biblical. And, you know, Adam is the one who gets talked to first by God. You know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Um, pretty, pretty speculative in my book. Don't, don't, don't leave with that one, certainly. All right, better, better reasons. And this is kind of the one I've, I've, I've hit at, but I haven't hit at it in the way I want to. Um, <clears throat> when we looked at the Old Testament at the beginning of, of today, Here's a key reason, one key reason. I have two, I think, but this is the first one. The virgin birth of Christ highlights that salvation comes by divine initiative. It highlights that salvation is by divine initiative. This is the reason why we have Sarah and Hannah and all the rest. This is the reason why we have uh, God bringing forth saviors for his people from barren women all across the Bible. 
This is not a uh, metaphysical reason. It's not a philosophical reason. It's a redemptive historical. It's a Bible reason. In a sense, Mary is the ultimate barren woman. There is no earthly explanation. There's no physical explanation. There's no explanation for this to work out. And yet, this is the scandal that the Word should become flesh. It's a scandal to all of us. It is, if you will, um, the gateway drug to Christianity. The virgin birth is the tripwire. I'm just making my analogies here. It's the tripwire to the Christian faith that if you stumble over this, you're going to have a really hard time when Jesus says, I'm raised from the dead. It's me. (laughs) You know, if this is a problem for you, how do you think you're going to deal with all the rest? It's a tripwire at the start of the gospel. It's a gateway drug into uh, Christianity. It is the thing designed to really test, are you actually in this for good? Are you here for the real deal? Are you going to raise objection, Your Honor? Salvation comes by God's initiative. God does it, right? There's no other way. This rules out any human effort. It rules out any possible way. There's there's no other way it could have happened. Comment on that before I hit the second key point. All righty. I guess you all are uh, enjoying that one. Think about it some more. You'll, you'll like it as you think about it. Second major point, major reason for the uh, virgin birth, the age of the Spirit is here. Not the age of Aquarius. The age of the Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, I've already hinted at it a little bit with the connection with the... the old creation, spirit hovering, overshadowing. But if you take some time this afternoon and you want to look at parts of the Bible, look at Isaiah 11 or Isaiah 61, and you'll realize that the power of the Spirit, right? This is uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God's upon me because the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, reclaim liberty to the captives, the gear of the Lord's favor, etc., etc., Um, The point here is that the Spirit comes upon this Messiah. The power of the Spirit comes upon the Messiah. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, becomes the main actor. And this language of the Spirit overshadowing is not simply in uh, Genesis. It's not simply in Isaiah 11-61. It's also in Ezekiel. It's in the, the latter parts of Ezekiel. I'll just think about Ezekiel 40. Verse 35, I'll turn there so you don't, uh, you don't have to too much. Ezekiel 40, 35. It's not, not, I have the wrong, uh, the wrong reference here, I'm afraid. That's not at all uh, what, uh, what I was intending to read. In any event. In the latter parts of Ezekiel, you can look it up for yourself and and find it out, and you can correct me uh, later on. The the image, nonetheless, of Ezekiel is uh, is of the Shekinah glory cloud filling the temple. 
as, as, as you come to the very end, um, you come to this, this picture of the, the glory of the temple. The holy, the holiness of God. You see this in, in, in Ezekiel 43, as the verse 4. Just to give you a different verse. As the glory of the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The idea here is the Shekinah glory cloud of God fills the tabernacle, fills the temple with glory. And so you have in the Bible the, the creation, you have the, the temple, and now you have new creation in Jesus Christ. This sets Christ apart as a kind of new creation. Not just the age of the Spirit, but something new is happening. He is the eschatological temple. He is the true dwelling of God with man. Any comments or questions on that? So two key reasons for the virgin birth, right? It comes, deliverance comes by God's initiative. And second, uh, something new is happening here. It's not just one more birth. It's not just something else over and over again. One more. Yes, sir. Uh, going back to that historical reason, all those prior miraculous births happen with daring women. This happens with, you sort of highlight one reason is that we, there's no question now, because it's not just barrenness and virginity. But is, is that the main reason why that's what you, this is an upset to that pattern in some ways? Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree, certainly. It is kind of raising it to the nth power or nth degree. Yeah. Yeah, good point. I'm watching the clock, Greg. Go ahead. Ezekiel, the whole passage of dry bones in 37, which leads into what you're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 totally key. Yeah. Yeah. God breathed right breath like his spirit, and the bones come alive. Yes. Now, I suppose a side note here. I had a section on impeccability. I have notes on it, you know, that is the idea that Christ could not sin. Uh, or rather, rather uh, was he able to sin, you know, uh, or was he merely able to resist all temptation? That's a very interesting question. You know, as I think about it, um, I, have, I have a lot of notes in it. I don't think we have time for it. And uh, most importantly, uh, I don't know if it quite fits in here. It might. I can make it fit if I wanted to. But I want to spend just a couple minutes more, uh, and then we'll break. Chatting a little bit here about uh, Mary for a second, because it is Mary we're talking about. This is woman. Couple of comments here on on Mary. I think um, you know we uh, in the Protestant tradition tend to treat Mary as if she had COVID, as if she had some kind of communicable virus. She had some sort of issue. You know, we we don't really talk about her that much because we're afraid that if we talk about her, we'll worship her. And we're afraid that if we talk about her, we'll uh, idolize her or some sort of thing. Um, you know, I once had a friend of mine who uh, became Eastern Orthodox said to me, you know, John, the reason that y'all Protestants have issues with um, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is that you haven't looked at Mary enough. Nah, I don't know. That's just kind of like a, a zinger. Um, but she's here. She's here. 
Why is she the one? Again, I think part of the reason why we want to go away from Mary is because we have the excesses of the doctrines of her immaculate conception, of her uh, assumption, kind of uh, Mariolatry, that she was always a virgin, that she herself never sinned, uh, which I guess requires kind of an infinite regress of not sinning in her life, but that's a whole other question. Um, and yet, the reality is that the creed mentions Mary by name. The creed includes her name. It could just say the virgin, born of a virgin. I mean, that's, that's biblical. You don't have to mention her name. But the creed does say the virgin Mary. She's more than just a surrogate mom. We're very familiar more and more in our day with surrogate mothers. It's a whole other question, ethical problem there. But uh, she's more than just a, a, a handy surrogate, you know, for the Christ child. She should have honor. We should praise her, not worship her. We should honor her. We should see that here is a Christian woman that we should look to as an example. Just as we look to other Christian women or men in our lives. Not more than that, not less than that, though. Mary was chosen by God to make a lifelong, a, a radical commitment to be the mother of Christ. Mary did not seek this. She did not, she did not deserve it. She had not been sinless up to that point, and therefore God chose her, contra to Roman Catholic doctrine. It was an act of divine initiative, an act of grace, as much divine initiative as the actual conception and birth itself. Uh, Nonetheless, she had been prepared in her teenage years of living. She had been a young woman who desired what God desired. So the time comes that she's asked to do the impossible, what seemed crazy. She pauses at the wonder of it, and then she submits herself to it. That's love for God. That's courage right there. Her heart, her body, her soul magnifies the Lord as, as, she, as she sings. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Notice her, her language. I'm humble. I'm just his servant. You can imagine the difficulty of raising Jesus and then the other kids she had. Half-brothers. Throughout the ministry of Christ, we get kind of these little hints of Mary popping up from the time that she's praying, that she's supporting, that she's fearing, that she's perhaps witnessing to others. She's available, she's faithful, she's there at the cross. She does, unlike what the Roman Catholics argue, she does not demand a spotlight. She doesn't say, look at me. She says, I'm the humble servant. I'm obedient. It is, yes, idolatry to pray to Mary, but it's highly appropriate to pray to be like Mary. Don't pray to Mary. Pray to be like Mary. That's the, that's the upshot of it all. The real Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, she's an example of the privilege of those who are called by grace. She's also an example of the privilege of those who respond to the grace of God. So if you want to know what to do with Mary, that's what to do with Mary. Pray to be like her. Don't pray to her. Comments on that? Questions? All right. Patrick, why don't you close us? Uh, thank you for your time. We'll prepare ourselves to worship. Our Lord, our God, we rejoice and praise you for your wondrous works. You are
breathes all of creation, time and space and into existence to breathe life of Christ into Mary's womb. You breathe new life into our dead and dry bones. You are the creator of life and sustainer of life. We praise you for it. So great salvation that you have brought forth to us. Help us to rejoice in that even in the hour of come and who you are and all that you are for us in Jesus Christ and power of the Spirit. Thank you.